Hello and welcome to Parliamentary Conversations in the Commonwealth, a podcast from the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, better known as the CPA. The CPA promotes knowledge of the constitutional, legislative, economic, social and cultural aspects of parliamentary democracy and supports parliamentarians across the Commonwealth to strengthen their democracies, to uphold the rule of law and to safeguard human rights. Now on today's podcast, we're taking a break from our normal multi-guest format to bring you a one-off episode with a very special guest, the former Australian Prime Minister, Julia Gillard. Julia was the 27th Prime Minister of Australia between 2010 and 2013 and the first woman to hold the office. She was first elected to the Australian House of Representatives in 1998, having been active in the Australian Labour Party for well over a decade before that. Julia became Prime Minister in 2010 following a party leadership election and during her time in office her government passed education reforms introduced a national disability insurance scheme and created a national broadband network. She also received international attention for a very famous speech in Parliament on misogyny in Australian politics. Now, since retiring from politics in 2013, Julia has worked internationally in the fields of education, women's leadership, health and mental well-being. And in April 2021, she was appointed as chairperson of the Wellcome Trust, which is a global charitable foundation that supports science to solve some of the world's most urgent health challenges. To discuss her work at Wellcome, plus a host of other topics from the progress being made in women's political participation to her concerns for children's mental health during the COVID-19 pandemic, Julia, who's been working from London in recent months, sat down in person with the CPA Secretary-General and the former United Kingdom MP Stephen Twigg for a wide-ranging conversation. So without further ado, here's the CPA's special In Conversation podcast with former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard. So hello, Julia. Uh, let's start uh, our podcast by talking about your uh, podcast, if that's okay, published by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, which uh, you chair. I think you've had more than 50 uh, episodes so far of your podcast. What have you learned from the women you've talked to? It's been a fantastic privilege, actually, and continuing. So uh, my podcast is called A Podcast of One's Own, and we named it that because the Global Institute for Women's Leadership works out of the Virginia Woolf building on Kingsway, and, of course, she is very famous for the saying that a woman needs a room of her own if she is to write. Uh, I've learned so much. We canvas women's lives and women's stories from the incredibly famous, like Kate Blanchett, uh, has been on the podcast, uh, to women who are just making remarkable changes through their own life's work, but are names people would never have heard of. Uh, one that comes to mind is a woman called Audette XL, who is an Australian. She's uh, been in the finance industry. She's still in the finance industry now, but she's created a business, all of the proceeds of which all of the profits go into development work for education and for women uh, in Nepal and in parts of Africa. So she wholly puts the profit stream into that. So it's just been, yeah, great to hear people from so many walks of life, politicians, business, scientists, artists, you know, authors, you name it, we've had them on the, po- on the podcast. 
Can you just tell us a little bit more about the King's College London Global Institute and how you work and some of your priorities going forward? Sure. Well, this was an idea of mine. It was a bit of a dream. uh, And I approached King's College. And the reason it was a dream for me is I came out of my own experiences in politics with this swirling set of questions in my head. You know, I knew a number of gendered things had happened to me. It didn't explain everything in my political career, but it was definitely a theme and a thread. And so I came out asking myself the question, how much of what happened happened because of me? How much happened because of the temper of the political times? How much happened solely because I was the first woman to do the job as Prime Minister? And when I was trying to answer those questions, particularly to write about them in my biography, my story, I looked out at the global research base on women and leadership, and there's some terrific work there. But I actually thought, given how long we've all been talking about this, there wasn't as much as you would think. And so I wanted to make a contribution to really bearing down on these barriers for women's, women leaders. And so we established the Global Institute here, which is doing remarkable work. And I'm delighted to say that we've got a sister institute coming on stream at uh, the Australian National University in Canberra. And so we're going to be able to uh, increase the resources on the task of looking at barriers to female leadership and what is the most effective way of breaking them down. So thinking back to when you first arrived in Parliament, I think it was in 1998, as a young woman parliamentarian, what, what are your memories from that time? It feels like a lifetime ago. It was a long time ago. I mean, one, an incredible sense of privilege to be there. I mean, it's hard to explain to people. And in an age where uh, there is a lot of natural cynicism around, I think it is hard to explain the thrill, the moment of first walking into the parliament, parliamentary chamber as a parliamentarian. I remember that really clearly. I remember being quite daunted. Uh, you think you're ready. And I had contested pre-selection on a number of occasions. I'd stood for an election where I wasn't elected. So I'd had lots of political experiences. I thought I was ready. But when the weight really comes on your shoulders, you're really not sure until you get about doing it, whether you're going to cope. And I was conscious too that I was in my side of politics in a period of major change around the number of women in politics. We had deliberately adopted an affirmative action rule and so more women were coming into politics. It was still a very blokey and male environment. In many ways, the Australian Parliament is still a very blokey and male environment, uh, but the Australian Labor Party's done a lot uh, to better include women. And so I did want uh, to show that a woman could, you know, hold her place, indeed dominate in that very adversarial environment, which is the Australian House of Representatives. And you mentioned the affirmative action program that the Australian Labour Party had. When we look at the Commonwealth today, Commonwealth parliaments include some with the best representation of women like Rwanda and others where representation is still extremely low. Do you have any reflections on the different mechanisms that can be used either by parties or by parliaments to increase women's representation? 
Well, one of the great things in my life now is I get to hang out with a lot of really smart researchers at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership and Professor Rosie Campbell, the director of the Institute here in London. uh, She is a political scientist and she's done a lot of research into uh, quotas and affirmative action and is clearly of the view based on that research that it works, that kind of structural intervention works. My own way of looking at that is when Labor adopted the affirmative action rule in the early 1990s, if you looked at Australia's national parliament then, both the Labor Party and the conservative side of politics were hopeless. It was like 14% women on one side, 13% on the other, so hardly a difference and both really bad. Uh, We adopted the rule and now at the national level and in state parliaments, the Labor teams are generally around half-half, you know, maybe 52%, 48%, maybe even 54%, 46%, but around about half-half. The conservative side of politics said no to quotas, no to affirmative action. It said it would use networking and mentoring and training schemes, which it has, But the dividend from those has been to drag the number in the federal parliament up to about a quarter. So just from that Australian example, I think you can see that the structural change of having an affirmative action target uh, does really make a very big difference. It forces political parties to look from the usual stable of candidates, broaden the lens and say, who else could we get to run and to start to see the women. And reflecting back on that time compared to now, how different is it to be a new woman parliamentarian now compared to in the late 1990s? Look, I think within Labor, it would be very different uh, because there's lots of senior women uh, to look up to as role models. Obviously, there's been a female leader, me. Uh, There would be all sorts of ways of networking with other women, of talking to them about issues that you're confronting. Uh, There's quite a large number of women now who are combining uh, being a parliamentarian with having a family. Uh, For example, a very good friend of mine, uh, Senator Marielle Smith, has had both of her children uh, while she's a senator. And on the Labor side, she's not alone. Uh, There is like a a new mum's club uh, that hangs together and supports each other during that difficult time of trying to juggle uh, work and and, uh, family life. But in the institution of parliament, I think there are still many things that women would encounter uh, that they would find quite dismaying and quite difficult. And clearly protecting women and other staff in their workplace must be a priority. Do you think, what, what do you think that parliaments as institutions, as distinct from the political parties, need to do to properly protect women in the parliament as a workplace. Yeah, I'm a big believer in sharing across parliaments, and I know that's the essence of what you do, Uh, but it amazes me that we don't do it um, ever more deeply because the number of things you can learn, uh, you know, even just being here in the UK, I had the opportunity uh, to meet Stella Creasy. She actually came on my podcast and she's a, a Labor member of Parliament. She had She's had two children now, I think, but when she had her first child, uh, she fought to have a locum, so someone who could kind of do her job as the local member of Parliament, still do the outreach to the local community, still meet with individuals who had, uh, you know, matters that they wanted their parliamentarian to raise. 
And in almost any other workplace, having someone cover your job when you're on maternity leave and just, you know, be so routine, it wouldn't even go with, you know, no one had even bothered talking about it. It's just obvious that if someone needs to go on some form of parental leave, someone will backfill their job. Uh, but she fought for that. And I've been using that example back in Australia because a whole lot of things have changed about entitlements and uh, your ability to bring children with you and a carer with you when you go to Canberra so that you don't have to be separated uh, from your young child. Uh, but they hadn't thought through that bit. You know, could you have this person that filled in in your electorate? Um, so there's a lot to learn. Mm. Let me move to a related issue, which uh, we're all aware of, uh, the uh, role of social media in terms of the lives of parliamentarians in general, but women parliamentarians in particular, if you'd like to sort of make any initial comments about that. Yeah, Amnesty International does uh, fantastic research on social media and its impact on politics, and they do it year by year. And I remember one time they did it here in the UK and it wasn't uh, the last uh, election here, it was the one before, uh, so the one involving uh, Theresa May as Prime Minister and Jeremy Corbyn as Opposition Leader. And they did an analysis of all of the truly vile, nasty social media directed at politicians during that election campaign and found that overwhelmingly it was directed at women and overwhelmingly, if you were breaking the subset of women down, it was directed at women of colour. And in the UK, that meant it was particularly directed at Diane Abbott, who is a, a black woman who is a very senior Labor politician and a very well-known name here in the UK. And so, you know, those trends hold true right around the world, but it does then, you know, cause you to ask a deeper question, which is, you know, on the surface in many ways, we'd say our societies are on the right pathway forward and they're getting to a more gender equal place too slowly and all the rest of it, but the direction of travel is forward. And yet when there's this deep seam of misogyny that comes to the fore when people have the benefit of anonymity, does make you question, you know, are we really progressing at the rate we think we are or is there all of this underneath that we generally don't see but is definitely there in terms of attitudes in the community? And you made a very famous speech in Parliament uh, about misogyny at that time. How far do you think social media has made this worse versus how far is this a, a long-standing challenge for women in politics? I think it's a long-standing challenge, but social media enables uh, people to more routinely give expression to it. And, you know, both you and I know what it's like to be recognisable and out on the hustings. And, you know, I mean, I can, across all my years in politics, I think I can count on the finger of one hand the number of times someone actually came and stood face to face with me and was incredibly rude. Um, you know, people hardly ever do that. I mean, they if they don't like you, they might just sort of toss their head and walk on. They don't stop and talk to you. So people aren't confrontationist in person, but the anonymity of social media lets it out of the box. Having said that, you know, social media is also a fantastic mm -hmm. organising tool. And one of the things that's given me a lot of heart is how women and supportive men are using social media to push back on gendered analysis. 
So one of the big times I was thinking about that was during the 2020 uh, presidential campaign in the US with now Vice President Harris, uh, then as the candidate for vice president. And when a lot of really gendered stuff had happened to Hillary Clinton in 2016, it wasn't pushed back on in real time. But by 2020, because people had had that experience, when things were said about Kamala Harris that were clearly sexist or racist, people flooded into the sort of public square through social media and really pushed back on it. And so I think that, you know, is a terrific upside of the immediacy of social media. started that role during a global pandemic. Let me start with quite a big opening question. What do you see at this stage as the lessons we can learn from the COVID-19 pandemic? It's all in the timing, isn't it? So uh, the Wellcome Trust is a really well-known name in the UK. Uh, I found less well-known in Australia and other parts of the world, but it's a very large philanthropic fund uh, focused on health and medical research. And uh, currently the uh, fund is over £30 billion. And our focus is on funding discovery research. So, you know, curiosity-led science, and often that kind of science gives us some big transformations. But three priority areas, infectious diseases, mental health, and diseases and health conditions exacerbated by climate change. Uh, And so, uh, you know, infectious diseases, we're all an expert now, aren't we? We're all um, knowledgeably wandering around the world talking to each other about the R rate and heavens knows what, the efficacy of vaccines. Uh, I think uh, we've got to remember that uh, whilst in some parts of the world it is increasingly uh, feeling like the worst of the pandemic is behind us, in many parts of the world with poor access to vaccines, the pandemic is really still in the in the middle um, and that there is a big journey for people to travel to get to the stage that they can safely reopen economies and, and society. When we reach, you know, global security because vaccines have got everywhere, I do think there will be some deep reflections about what we can do better. And amongst the things that I know are being talked about is better surveillance, you know, a global collaborative system so that we can monitor in real time flare ups of potentially new viruses that could have major impact, Uh, having uh, better uh, preparedness in terms of vaccine manufacture. So, you know, the scientists worked a miracle in terms of getting vaccines developed, but then the logistics of manufacturing doses around the world in huge numbers. I think we've learned some things about how to do that better. Uh, And then I think there have been some things learned about public health, public health messaging strategies through diagnostics, uh, through uh, community education to better keep people safe. So, you know, there will be a bigger agenda of change. What do we need to do in the global landscape, the global health architecture? What do we need to do as individual countries to be better prepared? And you mentioned the question of poor access to vaccines, and there's obviously a lot of concern around vaccine equity, and particularly in many parts of Africa. What do you see as the sorts of solutions that the world should be considering in the immediate period to address this? Well, I think the uh, world just has to, at this stage, 
uh, make new and more urgent efforts uh, to distribute vaccines uh, to places that haven't had access. Uh, you would recall that there was the G7 meeting here uh, earlier this year, uh, Boris Johnson as Prime Minister overseeing that, and commitments were made about uh, vaccine doses, but most of them were actually in 2022. Uh, so, you know, efforts need to be made to increase the number and to bring the number forward, and particularly in circumstances now where many countries actually have vaccine supplies that are in excess of their immediate needs because mm. they vaccinated um, everyone or, or made vaccines available to everyone who's prepared to take one, uh, then there are supplies that can and should be released. What do you see as the barrier to the countries that signed up to this at the G7 just getting on with it? I think uh, people are looking to their domestic politics first uh, and you know, I mean, I've been a national politician, so I'm not going to get too critical around all of that. Uh, it's understandable that when the pandemic hit, we as individuals started to focus on our own home front. You know, the most important question for all of us is, were, you know, am I safe? Is my family safe? You know, are we all going to be okay together? Uh, so, you know, people focus inwards, political leaders focused inwards uh, to the home front. But now we are really at the stage where, you know, the best thing you can do for the home front is to vaccinate everyone around the world uh, because the scientists are absolutely telling us that the key risk now in terms of mutations is correlated with how much virus is still in circulation. So, you know, it might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but, you know, we're sitting here today in London uh, whether you're in London or in Sydney or anywhere else in the world that's got good vaccination rates now, uh, we are safer if we are vaccinating people in sub-Saharan Africa and there is less uh, virus in circulation there and less capacity for it to mutate in a way that means it's capable of vaccine escape, in which case we'd all be back to ground zero. We'd all be back to the days of, you know, strong lockdowns until mm. the scientists tweak mm. the vaccine uh, to deal with the new mutation. So as you rightly say, uh, the priority for governments and members of parliament will always be their own communities, their own constituents. But how do you have a message for parliamentarians about how they can strike the balance between what is right immediately for the country and their own constituents, but also broader justice for the rest of the world? I think there is the education campaign. I mean, parliamentarians get listened to. Uh, they've got their communications channels. So you can use that to explain this argument about how we're all safer together. And second, I would hope that there can be some reaching out uh, across political parties. I mean, this is the sort of issue that would get diabolical if it becomes partisan, uh, whereas if parliamentarians can come together uh, and actually put the case for change in a more combined way, I think that could make a huge difference. Can I move a, a little bit more widely in this area? You talked about mental health as one of the uh, priorities for, for the Wellcome Trust, and obviously mental health has come up in the conversation around the impact of some of the restrictions that have arisen from COVID, perhaps particularly the impact on children and young people. What do you see as the big areas where work needs to be done to address mental health? Yeah, one of the things I do is I chair Beyond Blue, which is Australia's largest uh, mental health charity and advocacy body. 
And so I've had an insight into this through their work. Uh, Beyond Blue um, does a lot of amazing things, but uh, in the pandemic, the most relevant has been the support services that it offers, which people can access online, but there is also a 24-7 telephone helpline where you ring up and you speak to a mental health professional. And during uh, the, the days of lockdowns, the call volumes compared with uh, relevant periods in earlier years have been 60, 70% up. Now, I'm anticipating, and the experts at Beyond Blue are anticipating, that as um, Australia emerges from lockdowns with high vaccination rates, volumes will go down, but there will continue to be some sections of the community in acute distress. So I think the move now is for mental health services to be ready for those lesser numbers but greater severity. And then I think there's a whole lot of unanswered questions about young people, Um, you know, and I I don't think anybody's really got the answers. So I think we're going to have to have a very sharp eye on the welfare of young people. One of the issues that's always struck me is that... um, health systems and education systems don't always work so well together. And I think mental health is an obvious area where the two things uh, do need to work better together. Do you have any thoughts on some of the priorities there? Yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. And I think often we basically say, um, oh, there's another thing for teachers to do. What, what about they uh, do everything plus now they're sort of mental health coaches, um, which... Uh, is too too much to ask without a whole lot of support. Um, Beyond Blue has this program, which the federal government uh, has funded, uh, called BU, which is an education support program. So it is a whole lot of resources for teachers and school communities uh, to use and to fall back on. So for a teacher who you know, is looking, whether it's on Zoom or actually in real life, looking at a classroom and thinking, you know, the behaviour of those children, you know, two, three, four children has really substantially changed. Um, They're much different than the children I remember. What is going on here? Uh, You know, a whole lot of resources to help you answer that question and then to work out where to get professional support for those kids. Uh, So I think that's part of the solution, making sure that we've got mental health resources being brought into schools rather than just saying, you know, you should be doing this, you should be on the welfare pastoral care side. And on mental health more generally, there's obviously still a lot of stigma in all societies about mental health. What do you think parliaments and parliamentarians can do to take a lead in encouraging a more open consideration of mental health? I think the best thing is to uh, be prepared to have the conversation yourself. Um, You know, one of the things I think we should say about what has been a very difficult period in, in human history and for everyone is I was actually impressed that even in the early days of the pandemic, when everybody was focused on, you know, physical health, am I going to get sick? Almost in parallel, not that far behind, the dialogue started about mental health and how do you keep yourself well during these difficult times. It was certainly true in Australia. I think it was true here in the UK and I'm sure it's true in many other parts of the world. So that's telling us, I think, that uh, we've done a lot to uh, shift uh, stigma and shame. 
in some ways, just the call volumes to Beyond Blue, you can look at that and go, that's really bad. It must be really lots of distress out there. But the other side of the coin is that's really good. At least people are picking up the phone instead of suffering in silence. Uh, so, you know, I think we're making progress, but leaders, whether they're parliamentarians or business leaders or whatever else, uh, can make a difference here by modelling good behaviour, you know, preparedness to talk about maybe their own struggles, their family struggles, what they're doing to keep themselves well, and understanding that people can't be, you know, on 24-7, you know, on Zoom or Microsoft Teams, you know, hour after hour, uh, that people are, are rounded human beings and they need a break. So, Julia, you've recently completed a seven-year stint chairing the Global Partnership for Education, GPE. Uh, As you know, I'm a big fan of the work of GPE, but some of our listeners may be less familiar with it. So perhaps you could provide an introduction to the work you've done with GPE. Hopefully, after seven years chairing, I can. But the uh, short story is uh, the Global Partnership for Education is the major multilateral fund that supports school education in developing countries It works with developing countries, around 70 of them, uh, to uh, properly plan education systems. And that might sound like a humble thing to be doing, but if you don't have a good plan, then nothing else can happen. And then to mobilise money, uh, predominantly international aid money, uh, to enable the realisation of the plan. And so the last uh, time GPE asked the world for money to do that uh, was here in London in July at an event co-hosted by uh, the UK government and the government of Kenya. And four billion US dollars were raised to support GPE's work and GPE's in the uh, business now of rolling that uh, funding out, but also raising another billion to make sure that it can have the resources it needs over the next five years. So the challenge on education was always going to be an enormous one, but COVID has clearly made that even tougher with school closures right the way across the world. What do you think is the big difference that COVID has made in terms of the work that Global Partnership for Education is doing. You're right, COVID is making it worse. I mean, pre-COVID, the challenge was measured by statistics like 250 million children in the world of school age were not in school. And we know from earlier health crises like Ebola, which are very serious uh, but more geographically limited, but when Ebola happened and schools had to close... Uh, when they subsequently reopened after the health crisis passed, the most marginalised children didn't come back to school, particularly the girls. And what had happened to them is they'd been the subject of child marriages or they'd been diverted from their education onto domestic duties so that an adult in the family could go out and do things that earn money for the family. Some had been diverted into subsistence agriculture and the like. Uh, And so informed by that experience... Uh, At the start of this pandemic, GPE rolled out a $500 million program to try and maintain educational continuity and to be able to track and trace uh, students when schools reopened. But, you know, as big as that program is, and I understand $500 million is a lot of money, there is still so much to do to make sure that we aren't losing uh, the kids that need education the most as a result of COVID. And you mentioned uh, girls' education, and there's been a big focus around girls' education. 
an area where there's a lot of coverage is what's happening in Afghanistan. Do you have any message for how we can ensure that girls' education is maintained in the current situation in Afghanistan? It has been absolutely heartbreaking to watch. And Afghanistan, uh, for quite a long time, has been a global partnership for education country and progress was being made in girls' education. Uh, progress was being made in training female teachers and that was an absolute key to uh, communities being prepared to send their girls, particularly their teenage girls, to school. So to see any of that go backwards is just heartbreaking. I do genuinely think that the international community, as it deals with the Afghanistan of today, needs to make girls' education and female empowerment a core part of what the international community is uh, asking Afghanistan to do. I mean, ultimately, this is a country that will uh, be looking for a lot of aid and support. Uh, clearly, the international community will be uh, pressing to make sure that Afghanistan doesn't become a haven for international terror again. Uh, but we should, I think, when we're marshalling the international community, make ensure that on the agenda is also uh, girls' education and women's rights. And from your seven years' experience at GPE, do you have a message for parliaments and parliamentarians for what they can do to contribute to promoting universal quality education? Uh, I guess I do. Um, I think for parliamentarians, you know, they'd often get challenged on uh, foreign aid expenditures, you know, the, the old saying charity begins at home when our local community still needs this, this and this. Why are we sending all of this money overseas? And I would um, say to parliamentarians that if they can convey uh, to their communities the unbelievable delight of watching children learn and knowing that because they are learning, their nations, their societies will be more peaceful and prosperous in the future. And that's in all of our interests. So in recent years, we've seen a growth in populism that's included a questioning of multilateral institutions and networks. An example of multilateralism is the Commonwealth. What do you see from your experience as the role of the Commonwealth in the 2020s? I actually think that there is an exciting role for the Commonwealth in the 2020s. And I know uh, that people might look, um, you know, at the Commonwealth and think it's a, uh, you know, a byproduct of a very unhappy history. Um, and, and we are, as a society now, unpacking that history in a way that we need to and confronting what it truly means. But I actually think the Commonwealth has a very productive role now because in our fraught, tense world, particularly uh, with tensions between the US and China, I do think that there is a real role for an institution that brings together countries from around the planet, uh, but without those two very, very sizable power players in the room um, so that countries can have a you know, free exchange about what is happening in the globe without necessarily um, having to immediately react to the US position or the Chinese position or the interplay between the two of them. And you talked about the history and um, clearly empire, slavery, other elements are part of that uh, Commonwealth history. Do you have a view about how we most effectively incorporate that into discussion within the Commonwealth so that the Commonwealth emerges stronger as a result of the discussion? 
Well, one, I think we've got to stare it in the face. And I think people are increasingly doing that. Cultural institutions, universities, you know, people are increasingly doing that. So the truth telling is important. And as a byproduct of the truth telling, uh, then we need the Commonwealth to really uh, view itself as, uh, you know, a coming together of uh, nations with uh, an equal status rather than, you know, the historic view of the Commonwealth, which would have been that the UK is sort of the mothership. Uh, I think that um, that has gone. It should go. We should welcome the fact that it's going. I don't mean to belittle the UK in that, but times are different uh, and we uh, need the Commonwealth to be truly inclusive of all of its members. And the final question, uh, young people are increasingly involved in politics. We've seen in terms of the climate change movement as one powerful example. Would you have a message for a young person, perhaps particularly for a young woman, who might be considering standing for elected office in the future? My message is always go for it. If you've got that sense of drive and purpose, you know what you want to go into politics for, then go for it. I then don't try and insult uh, the intelligence of young women because they are very smart uh, and pretend that it'll all be fine. There will be gendered bits. There will be times that they're treated differently, lesser, simply because they're a woman. There'll be challenges that they have to confront that male MPs don't. Uh, but they are in the position that uh, I joke, uh, use the joking expression, you've seen this movie before because you've seen uh, what other women have been through. And that does mean you can be forewarned and forearmed and ready to deal with those moments when they come. And you can be part of the generation that brings the next wave of change so that it gets easier for the woman after that and the woman after that. And one really strong message when Ngozi and I wrote our book and we interviewed women leaders, women leaders like Jacinda Ardern are crystal clear that it's easier for them. She's the number number three third woman to lead her nation, it is different because two women went before. Uh, So you can be one of those women who went before and makes more space for the next generation. Julia Gillard, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's special episode of Parliamentary Conversations in the Commonwealth. If you liked what you heard, then don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on your favourite podcasting app to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To find out more about the work of the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, visit our website at www.cpahq.org or follow the links in the podcast description.